So tonight we're in John 13, so you can turn there if you haven't already. And um, we're going to be talking about serving others and loving others. And uh, just a question, just to kind of think through here at the beginning, I want to uh, kind of pitch to you guys, um, is how, how do we decide who is worthy of serving? Uh, in our own lives, like how do we pick and choose like this person is is worth my my time or my energy or or I'm willing to give my time and energy to. Um, and then also not only what type of person, but what type of task are we willing to do for um, any given person? So maybe you might go to a further extent of serving and loving somebody that is of this type or this relation to you, um, and you might do less for somebody who is of less relationship to you. Um, but how do we kind of determine that? And how do we determine, well, what is my time worth in serving others? I think it's something that, that God would have us to consider tonight. Just a quick story is I'm, um, and I've, I've mentioned this before kind of for a different reason, but uh, I, you know, worked at um, the rehearsal studio in North Hollywood. And there were times that I would be um, kind of, well, I mean, I was, a, I was doing janitorial work um, at the studio in part, there was other things too. Um, but in doing so, I just remember sometimes being so like, kind of frustrated and almost ashamed because I'm doing these kind of menial tasks of emptying the trash and just, I mean, people just bring food and tons of just beer and weed and everything else that these trash cans are full of. And uh, these rooms that I was cleaning out just stink like, you know, high school musicians. And I remember just doing this task and thinking, I don't have to do this. Like I'm, my time is more valuable than this, or this is more, um, I, I, these people that I'm serving these worship leaders at these big churches in LA who are practicing here, like I could be doing what they're doing. Like I shouldn't be, somebody else should be doing this for me. I shouldn't be doing this for other people. And just kind of having these thoughts that I was wrestling through. Um, but that's just a little confession there at the beginning uh, that, and, and maybe we all have these situations that we've come to, I don't know, but it's just like where there's a, an opportunity to serve, but we kind of decide based on the person and based on the task, um, are we are we going to follow through with this? Is this something that is um, right for me to do for this person? Uh, we're going to get into that tonight, and Jesus, I think, is going to help us kind of answer that question of maybe where that line is. It's a big moment that we're coming to in. John chapter 13 and just right around this section, um, as Jeff described last week, we're reaching the very peak of the mountain of all history, right? Um, it's this Kairos moment that um, it had said in chapter 12, where Jesus says, hey, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And so all of, of history is building up to this point and the hours, it's not yet, it's not yet, it's not yet, and now it has come. 
and it's it's arrived here for the for the rest of the book of John. We're going we're we're in that final hour, so to speak. Um, we're looking at one main event tonight. We'll make it almost all the way through the chapter, the first thirty verses. One scene, and it's a scene which the author John really wants us to picture in our minds. There's a lot of detail in this section about this story. He doesn't skip over a lot. And you're going to see, as we start to read, a massive setup from John, the author, um, of what is about to happen. There's this huge, these first few verses, this huge setup where Jesus is going to say things like, hey, he knew his hour had come to depart out of this world. That's a big deal. We know how big of a deal it was for him to come to this world. The hours come for him to depart. We are going to read, he loved his disciples to the end, the very end. We're going to read the setup that he knew that the father had now had given all things into his hands. So he has all power and authority over everything. And it says he knew that he came from God and was going back to God. So this is the moment, this hour not to mention, we'll see that his adversary, Jesus's adversary, the devil, was now mounting his attack through Judas. And in all of these uh, one-time-in-history moments, um, Jesus has a final opportunity to instill into the disciples who he is and what that means for them. Um, Jesus isn't going to speak to the crowds any longer in the book, uh, only to the disciples and, and a few who arrest him and a few who question him. But, but it's in these intimate spaces now, and it is no accident, just like everything else in the order of how John writes, it's no accident that this event is placed where it is in the story. And I believe Jesus wants to tell us something through this event. Um, I believe that he wants to tell you, Jeff, something through this event. Um, and Nick and Jessica and Esther and Olivia and all of y'all. Um, he wants to tell us through something through through this event. Um, so so here it is, this beginning part, what we expect and then something that we don't expect. I'll read starting in verse one of chapter 13. Now, before the Passover, I'm sorry, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus, now listen to this, he knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. That's the big setup. Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you don't understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, 
you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. So we'll stop there for just a minute. Let me help us understand the cultural significance of this foot washing scene. Okay, first of all, you can picture, maybe you've heard this before, uh, throw out the artistic version of the Last Supper that you've seen um, and think of a kind of U-shaped formation of the disciples. It seems like only this is just the 12. And typically for a meal like this, this is what it seems like they were doing, um, they would be reclining or, or kind of laying on the ground. And they'd be laying towards, if they're in a U shape, all of their heads would be on the U and their legs and body would be going outward, if this makes sense. And um, they would be just kind of leaning on their left arm and eating with their right hand. Okay, and, and using it to you know talk with if, if that's what you need to to do to talk like my wife. Um, so I, I don't know if you can you can picture that, but they're laying on the ground just all sprawled out with their all of their feet behind them in a U, so they can all kind of see each other and talk to each other, and they're eating with their right hand. Okay, does that make sense? My my description there. Okay. Um, not good, by the way, if you have like acid reflux or something. That's just not a good way to eat, right? While you're laying down. Maybe their food was different than ours. Uh, foot washing was common in the day, right? Because you're walking around in sandals and your feet get dusty. Um, there wasn't quite the pavement and, and asphalt or the, uh, sorry, concrete and everything else that we have these days. Um, but this particular version of foot washing was not common at all. Uh, first of all, it, it would usually be like when you arrive somewhere right and this was right in the middle of the meal um secondly who would wash your feet uh oftentimes i think most of the time you'd wash your own feet so maybe you showered before you came somewhere but then you walked in the dirt so you'd arrive somewhere and wash your feet as you entered um slaves might also wash your feet should you have them um but it was such a lowly task for somebody to wash your feet, um, that it was argued that even uh, Jewish slaves shouldn't have to wash anybody's feet. That was kind of the going thought, but only Gentile slaves, like the lowest of the low. If anybody's gonna wash your feet besides yourself, it shouldn't be a Jewish slave, but a Gentile slave. That would be okay in the culture. And, and maybe of course, women and children too, that would be okay too, because they're about down there with the Gentile slaves, right? So washing your peers' feet, I, from what I understand, might have been done rarely and symbolically to kind of show your love and, and your care for somebody, but very rarely. It wasn't a common thing to have that. Now, there had never been in, in, in Jewish and Greco-Roman recorded history that we have at this day, there had never been record of an authority 
figure washing the feet of a subordinate, except right here in chapter 13. So there was never any other time where you saw a master wash the feet of a slave or a rabbi wash the feet of their student or parent their child or an elder their younger. This never happened except right here at the Last Supper. And um, so it was it was typical to wash feet, right? But it was very atypical to see something like this happen that is described in chapter three, um, chapter 13. Um, and hold on a minute while I readjust Izzy so she stops snoring hey, wake up, wake up. Okay. okay there we go she was the commercial jesus taking off his outer garment and tying the towel around his waist he was that that was what a, a servant would look like no outer garment um maybe just even in a loincloth and and with a towel ready to wash their feet um which may sound familiar in philippians 2 um, it says that jesus emptied himself of his kind of rightful place in heaven, right? And he was taking the form of a servant, Paul says in, in Philippians 2. Um, not as, as God, everything that he could grasp at, but a servant. So there was, when, when Jesus was doing this, there must have been, at least internally, just shock happening in the uh, disciples' minds and in their hearts at, at what is going on. This is super weird. And then what happens with Peter uh, in verse six? He says, Lord, and this is just kind of shows it here. Lord, do you wash my feet? You see the emphasis there? Like you are our rabbi, our Messiah, you wash my feet? And verse eight, he kind of says, never, that should never be. All, all of the apostles probably, or disciples feeling the same thing. Um, likely like this is their messiah they've acknowledged him pretty much at this point and peter's like jesus you're off your rocker if you think that you messiah are going to wash my feet this lowly fisherman and all the rest of these stinky dudes um to which jesus replies in verse eight if i don't wash you you don't have me you don't have any part in me so not only peter should i let you do this um, but for us to have true fellowship, I must do this for you. And uh, Jesus seems to be, I think, in that statement, he seems to be tying this foot washing to kind of his forthcoming cleansing of their sins on the cross, which we understand if that's not accepted, then it leaves us without relationship with him, right? No part of him. So Jesus says, hey, you have to be willing to receive the the humble service that I'm giving you to receive me at all. Or you could say it this way, hey, if you can't let him wash your feet, then you're surely not going to let him die your death. But it's that kind of humility that's needed for God to save a person. So uh, that's a hard thing, right? For some people, even still to to learn about Jesus and to receive like he God did that either foot washing for the disciples or death on the cross for me like that's just that seems unbelievable to many um the interaction with Peter here kind of reminds me of 
Matthew 16, uh, right after, I think it's in Mark 2, right after Peter gets it right that Jesus is the Messiah. Remember that? He says, you're, you're the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus then begins to explain that he is a Messiah that will die. Once they realize he's Messiah, he's like, yes, but I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to be delivered up and crucified. And Peter says at that point, may that never be, to which Jesus replies, get behind me, Satan, because if Jesus, it, he knows if he doesn't die, then no one is going to be cleansed. So it's like Peter's kind of well-intentioned thought there. Jesus is like, no, dude, this is how it, it has to happen if you want any part of me. So poor Peter, he just can't seem to get things right because even after Jesus says, hey, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Peter says, then don't just wash my feet, but wash my hands and wash my head and wash everything, right? Um, different people, I think, that I've read about think kind of different things about Jesus response here uh, in verse 10 that response, I think Jesus basically is saying. Peter I will cleanse you in my way, not yours. And nothing can be added to the work of of cleansing that i'm done remember this foot washing is kind of representative of what he would do on the cross so so Peter stop trying to do it your own way and accept my cleansing on my terms, which comes from me choosing to serve you in this way. So let's move on, uh, verse 12, read a little bit more. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he was probably at the head of the table, right in the middle of the U, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? Verse 13, you called me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. That's a quote from Psalm 41. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Now, I want you to notice in verse 19 that Jesus wants to make sure his disciples know that his future arrest was not unanticipated by Jesus. He knew it was coming. So he says in verse 19, I'm telling you this now, I'm predicting the future before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. So you can understand, he, he's saying, hey, I know it's going to seem like I've been overtaken, but because I'm telling you the future now, just know that I'm really the one calling the shots in this. No one takes Jesus life from him. He, he chooses to give it up. And he's wanting to make sure the disciples are understanding this. Now, in this section, um, this kind of middle section of our night tonight, 
Jesus kind of moves on from how he has just served the disciples with washing their feet and will serve them, that symbol of, of the future crucifixion. And he moves from that to why and how they are to serve one another. And how is that? But just like Jesus. Verse 15, he says, for I've given you an example. That, that's a word that means you, you, you trace over it. That you should also do, that, I'm sorry, that you also should do, he says, just as I have done to you. That's what the disciples ought to do in response of this demonstration. It's very similar to what we'll read next week. Just as I have loved you, Jesus tells the disciples, you also are to love one another. Well, how is that? How did Jesus love his disciples? What's his example? It's what he just did for them. He says in verse 14, if I've washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Right, Javon and Melissa? <laughs> um, obviously, it doesn't mean that you literally must wash one another's feet, but, but any act of, of service. And the point being, there is no service that is too low. And certainly foot washing was chosen because it represented the, the lowest fathomable form of humble service, right? That not even many slaves would do, washing somebody's dirty feet. Uh, remember also that uh, this was an act of foreshadowing Jesus' service for the disciples in his death on the cross. And uh, though we can't like follow that example and cleanse one another just in the same way that Jesus did, um, in a couple of weeks, we are going to hear Jesus say, hey, greater love has no one than this, than, than that he lay down his life for his friends. So Jesus is telling them, you should do just as I have done to you. And that means you should serve each other even to the point of death. Or like verse one says, uh, having loved his own who were with him in the world, he loved them to the end, to the fullest extent. And now Jesus is saying, just as I have loved you, that's how you are to love and to serve one another. And he makes this statement in the middle there. A servant is not greater than his master. That's kind of a favorite statement of Jesus. He was really fond of making that. It says it in several places in the Gospels, in different situations. And um, I just want to make sure we understand what he's saying in that statement. It's if Jesus, the teacher and Lord, or the rabbi and the master, if he washed the feet of his disciples and his servants, you could say, what ought we be willing to do for one another? If he did that, could we, the sons of man, not serve each other in the same way or lesser ways that the son of god served us and if you're unwilling then you don't understand what just happened because god himself just washed their dirty feet so if he is able to do that then surely you can wash one another's feet surely you can serve and love one another to a very great extent okay makes sense Verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled 
in his spirit. And stop there for just a second. Don't forget that Jesus is in complete control. He knows at all times everything that's going to happen. And at the same time, he felt everything that was happening. He felt deeply every step of the way these things as they are unfolding, even though he knows that they're going to unfold. So John's gospel here is full of theology about the sovereignty of God in all things, but we get these important reminders. We even saw one last week that Jesus experiences everything chronologically with us in the moment, and he experiences it emotionally. Jesus is not apathetic. He's not some cold character. As we've seen John describe several times, most recently with Jesus weeping for this Lazarus family at his death, Jesus feels. And it's really important as we head into the description of the crucifixion that we remember that, right? He's, he's feeling, he doesn't just know and, and control these things that are happening, but he's feeling them as, as it happens. And I love those little reminders there. So Jesus was troubled in his spirit and he testified, we read, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So obvious, he, obviously he, he feels this deeply. The disciples looked at one another, it says, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table um, at Jesus' side. Now, uh, for reasons I won't go into, this is probably John that is talking about, who's the John who's written the gospel here. So he's reclining at, at Jesus' side, and, and Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. Verse 25, so that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. All right, so Judas is or was on a satanic mission in the fullest sense. Betraying Jesus in this way, um, it forever gives Judas another name, right? Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus, the betrayer. If you listen uh, throughout John's gospel, several times he says this, John 6, 71. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him, John says, or Jesus says. John 12, 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, goes on to say something. Um, in this chapter 13, verse 12, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. And then in a few weeks, we'll read in uh, chapter 18, verse 2. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place for, that Jesus met with his disciples. And then in 18, verse 5, Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. So John can't even mention the name of Judas without making sure that we have set him apart in our minds 
as the betrayer of Jesus. And um, we'll even see in the next chapter, there's another one of the 12 disciples. I don't know if you know this, who's also named Judas, but John identifies him very carefully as Judas, not Iscariot. No, he's, he's not that one. He's not the one who betrayed Jesus. And everyone else in the future who has ever been named Jesus, which I don't, I'm sorry, been named Judas, which I'm unsure of why anybody might name their kid Judas, but um, forever they would be Judas, but not that Judas, not that one, not the betrayer. Like you, you constantly want to pull yourself away from Judas, the betrayer that John constantly reminds us of. Don't name your kid Judas uh, if you can help it. Jude, fine. Judah, fine. Judy, Judith, whatever. But Judas, ah, just try to avoid that thing. It's just got some bad connotations, right? Maybe you know a Judas. There's people still are naming their kids Judas. Um, in Switzerland, by the way, it's illegal to name your child Judas, um, along with Lucifer and some other names that you can't name your kid legally. So Judas becomes known as really as Judas the betrayer, um, similar to how Jesus becomes known as Jesus the Christ. That's uh, it's their titles, Judas the betrayer. In fact, if Jesus is the hero of the story here, Judas is really the villain. And look at verse 27, it says, then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Wow. It's almost like we have Jesus, a man in whom God dwelled, compared alongside Judas, a man in whom Satan, at least temporarily, dwelled. So he's the ultimate villain. He is the arch enemy of Jesus. Um, I won't go into the reasons, but I think Satan in the biblical story himself is the antithetical being, not to Jesus, but to the archangel Michael. I think Satan is kind of the archdemon, Lucifer, Satan, the accuser. So um, Judas I think John is setting him up as this antithetical kind of adversary to Jesus. And then he, after all of this, he takes the morsel and he left the Lord. And John interestingly makes um, a point of recording, and it was night at the end there of verse 30. And it was night. Maybe to remind us of John 10 that said, if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Judas had literally just walked out of the presence of the light of the world and darkness has overtaken him. So I want you just to picture this scene. Everyone's laying around this U-shaped table, you know, leaning on their left arm. And Jesus says, hey, one of you is going to betray me. And Peter, wherever he's sitting, he tells John, who was right next to Jesus on his right, he's like, hey, ask him who he's talking about that's going to betray him. And it says that John leaned back against Jesus to ask him. So um, that, that 
again, kind of puts Jesus right next to, or, I'm sorry, puts John right next to Jesus, right at his right side. You can just kind of picture it. If they're laying on their left arm, he's leaning back into Jesus. He couldn't, he couldn't do so that way. It literally says that he, he's in the bosom or in the chest of Jesus. So just imagine that if people are kind of stacked up that way. Um, the right side of, of the host, which in this case is Jesus, um, from what we understand, was a position of honor at the table. And so maybe not surprisingly, John is, is sitting in that position, as best we can tell. But there was one higher position at the table besides the host. From what we understand of this ancient way of sharing a, a, a meal like this, the seat to the left of the host was the, the supreme seat of honor, the most important guest, you could say. Well, who do you think was seated there? I don't know if, if you've heard this before. Um, I don't want to build too much on this because John doesn't say specifically, but let's just hypothesize for a second. First, Jesus is able to hand this piece of bread to Judas, right? While he's, I, I presume he, he's, he's lying here at the table and within arm's reach seems to be Judas. It doesn't, of a lot of stuff that's recorded, doesn't say anything about Jesus rose up from supper again and he went over to Judas and he handed him this piece of bread or might've been a piece of meat, this morsel that was dipped in the bowl. And it doesn't say, and he, he said, hey guys, pass this piece of bread down to Judas so that he can take it. But probably it sounds like Judas was in arm's reach of Jesus. Secondly, Judas was the treasurer. We've already kind of found out, like he kind of kept charge of the money for this band of disciples. That's an important position, maybe one of the most important positions among the 12 disciples. And so it is not unlikely that a treasurer would be sitting in the most honorable seat. Thirdly, in Matthew's account, Judas, um, we kind of read how he, he and Jesus kind of privately confer with each other about the betrayal. Judas is like, is it I? And Jesus confirms that. So if the other disciples, as described here in John, don't know why he's leaving, Judas is leaving the supper when he does, then they must not have heard that sidebar conversation that Jesus had with both John and with Judas. So, so in our account here, all of the disciples hear Jesus say, what you're going to do, do it quickly, right? Um, in verse 27, all the disciples hear that. Um, but remember, when they hear that, it says they don't know why he's getting up. Maybe he's getting more food. Maybe he's going to give you know something to the poor, whatever it is. But it seems that only John, who's almost assuredly on Jesus' right side, and Judas likely on Jesus' left side, knew that he was leaving to betray because he had these little conversations. They heard what Jesus said to them most privately because they were the closest. I think it's reasonable to say that Judas is likely to have been seated at this position of highest honor next to Jesus. Even if not, um, it's also known that this dipping of bread or meat in a bowl and handing it to someone at a at a meal 
was also a significant kind of sign of honor or of friendship. Like you're trying to draw special attention to this person, this honorable person. And the passage that Jesus quoted from earlier um, comes from Psalm 41, 9, that calls this betrayer a close friend. So all of these things, I, just, I bring that up to say, um, because of this favor, really, that, that God um, or that Jesus was bestowing on Judas, what he was about to do was the most blatant act of treachery in history, and which is why he rightly becomes known for it. He becomes the arch enemy of Jesus. So, uh, like, can you even imagine being Judas? Like, Judas knows what he's going to do, right? Going into the dinner, he's already talked to the religious leaders and kind of struck his deal. So he knows what he's going to do. And as they arrive and they're kind of getting set for dinner, maybe Jesus is like, hey, Judas, my, my friend, sit here in this place of honor. Okay, cool. But Judas knows, man, that, that would be rough. Man, he's, he's honoring me. And what am I about to do? And then Jesus, along with the others, from what we can tell, washes Judas's feet as well. I don't know if you catch that, but the feet of this enemy who knows what he's going to do. Um, in fact, if you look back at verse two, it says during supper when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas to betray him. So Judas is very aware of go what's going on and he gets the seat of honor and he gets his feet washed and then he gets handed this piece of bread symbolizing friendship and honor. All while Jesus, Judas has already made plans to betray Jesus. So Judas knows the whole time this is going on. He is wretched that he, that he knows this and just allows it to go on and continues with his plan. And not only did Judas know the whole time, but Jesus knows exactly what's going on the whole time, right? Like John keeps reminding us in the narrative, um, he knew who would betray him. It says uh, in verse 10, in verse 18, Jesus knew that Judas' act would, would fulfill scripture. Verse 19, Jesus, he tells his disciples that he knows the betrayal before it happened. Verse 21, one of you will betray me. Jesus is very aware. He, he kind of triggers the betrayal even with this morsel of bread that he hands and, he, and this command he gives in verse 27, do it now. So Jesus knew he was choosing this fully aware and knowing that Judas knew. So Judas knows and Jesus knows. And Jesus still lowers himself in love as a servant and washes his and the rest of the disciples' feet. So here's just where I want to land on this. This uh, section of scripture describes many absolute kind of ends of the spectrum. We see the highest authority, Jesus, who's sent by the Father, he's one with the Father. It says in verse three, it was in his hands that, that all authority was, was placed. Everything had been given to him. So Jesus, this highest authority, and we see the lowest of tasks, washing feet. Usually you only do it for yourself or maybe a Gentile servant would do it. And Jesus was not only washing the feet of, of say, a peer, uh, if he could even have a peer, um, but he's washing the feet of men and not just his 
subordinates like students or his servants, but he's washing the feet of the one man who is committing the greatest act of betrayal of all time, his enemy, Judas. So we have the highest authority completing the lowest task for his worst enemy. So what do we learn from this? There is no task too low for you to do, and there is no person too wretched for you to serve. Jesus, AKA God, served and honored someone knowing 100% that they would go on to betray him in the most heinous way. There is no task too low for you to do and no person too wretched for you to serve. Going back to my question kind of at the very beginning, we, we make these kind of um, calculations in our mind, right? Well, would I do this? Should I serve in this way? This person, they might hurt us. I might not get anything in return. Uh, they're not worthy of my time or attention. We, 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 we make judgments and, and calculate these things, right? There is no task that is too low for you. Not eating a meal together with someone, not washing someone's feet, not dying for someone. And there is no person too wretched for you to serve. Not your peer or brother, not your slave, not your utter enemy. Now, I know that y'all already know this passage. Like you've heard this preached before, right? Um, be like Jesus, right? Serve others. If Jesus did it, so should you. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. So we should do that too, right? But this idea, this, this higher serving the lower, this is kind of a new concept with Jesus. He was saying things to the disciples and, and showing them things that they didn't understand that they hadn't seen before. And he says that in verse seven, what I'm doing, you don't understand now, but afterward you'll understand, he says. There are a lot of times in the gospel that the disciples, we've, we've seen it, they don't have a clue what's going on. And a few of those record that after Jesus' resurrection, then they would understand. So that, that passion event that, that's about to happen in the story here, that sheds light on the meaning of a lot of prior events that had happened. So uh, also then uh, Jesus, even a couple chapters later here, we read that he is going to give, or the next chapter, he's going to give the Holy Spirit to help the disciples um, understand all things, to teach them all things, and to guide them in all truth, we'll read in chapter 16. So they didn't understand the significance of this, that even if the higher would serve the lower, then what ought we be willing to do? But we are, like you and I, are post-resurrection, right? Like we have understanding. We know what he's talking about here. We know what he's about to go do. We know what that accomplished for the sake of others. We also have the Holy Spirit that promises that Jesus promised would give us understanding. So we understand this passage very clearly. We understand what Jesus is suggesting. We can think of things. We will in just a second. Things can come to our mind um, of, of, of what he's talking about in our own lives. And so I believe that, that verse 17 
is a good exhortation to kind of send us out. I think it's recorded for our sake just as much as it was said to the disciples in that day. So um, let me just read uh, verses 12 to 17 um, that uh, we might be just encouraged to do this. Um, when he had washed their feet and he put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And then verse 17, if you know these things, and we do, blessed are you if you do them. Do them. We know these things. We know what he's talking about. We know where we fail in this. We know the judgments that we make and who we're unwilling to serve or do something for, the task that we're not willing to do. We know it. We know that that symbolizes the life of Christ, his life and his death and his service of others. If you know these things, he says, blessed are you if you do them. So let's do it.